Support for Renewable Radio comes from Quantum Insulators LLC in Belfast, serving Midcoast, Maine as licensed dealers of the Isonian insulation system, healthier, quieter, and energy efficient. More information at 1-866-578-WARM or www.isonine.com. Support for Renewable Radio comes from Harvest Fuels, Midcoast, Maine's full-service bioheat oil dealer, offering biofuel blends from natural, renewable resources for oil heating systems. Information at harvest at midcoast.com or 236-4172. It's just a few seconds after 10 o'clock. You are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 102.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Talk of the Towns with host Ron Beard is up next. Good morning and welcome to Talk of the Towns here on WERU. We try to go beyond the headlines to make sense of the issues facing Maine communities, to share what works, to seek alternative solutions. Talk of the Towns is produced with support from Cooperative Extension, the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine with offices statewide. Cooperative Extension puts knowledge to work with the people of Maine and like WERU, whose mission is to be a voice of many voices operates out of a sense that everyone benefits when we share our knowledge, our experience, our concerns, and our perspectives. We're about to practice the magic of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our friends, our neighbors, and colleagues. I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour and talk of the towns. The land conservation movement started in response to development pressures as far back as the 1800s. Today, there are many examples of local efforts that not only set aside land so it won't be developed, but to encourage public use and benefit. So for the next hour, we're going to be talking with some representatives of the land conservation movement here in Maine and um, how they see um, the land trust movement developing and uh, some of its purposes and examples of specific projects. We're glad to welcome Buck O'Haran, is uh, the director of the Sheepskit Wellspring Land Alliance. Welcome to you, Buck. Thanks, Ron. And Sherry Domina is with us. Uh, Sherry's a, um, a friend and neighbor of WERU, um, located uh, quite near with the Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust. Welcome to you, Sherry. Thank you. Well, let's um, get started. Maybe each of you, um, Sherry, you could tell us a little bit about um, yourself and, and uh, um, just a, a thumbnail sketch of Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust. Well, I live right here in East Orland, pretty close to the station, and I've been the director of Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust since 2006, but I've actually been with them for quite a long time, um, back since their inception in 1993. Uh, I've been involved, and um, we started as a small group looking to protect the area right around Great Pond Mountain in Orland. Um, it's a beloved spot for people from probably an hour's drive around to come and, and uh, spend an afternoon hiking, wonderful easy hike. And um, so that was the early focus, was just to land right around the mountain. And we finally realized that we did have to expand our focus to the Orland River watershed. And um, now we actually cover um, more or less the towns of uh, Orland, Bucksport, Verona, and Dedham. And um, we're also able to operate and maybe in partnership in surrounding towns with some of the other uh, local land trusts. Great. We'll come back to more of the story of Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust in, in a few minutes. Um, <clears throat> Buck, maybe you could provide a little bit of information about yourself, how you got started in, in some of this. Sure. Um, I got on the board of the Sheepskit Wellspring Land Alliance in 1999, and the land trust is in Montville, and the service area is the upper Sheepskit River watershed, 
and covers the towns of Montville or part of the towns of Montville, Liberty, Palermo, and Freedom. And in late 2005, early 2006, we had a, a, work, a workshop and a retreat and decided to uh, try to ramp up our efforts and wanted to hire an employee for the first time in the organization's history. Um, the, the group got started in about 1990 and um, formally organized in 91. So I became the first executive director also in 2006, uh, was a volunteer for a while, and now I'm a uh, paid part-time executive director. And uh, the group also works with other land trusts in the area. Collaboration's a great thing. Um, we've done that in the watershed, outside of the watershed uh, with our trails. And um, the land trust protects a little over 800 acres right now, um, 500 and 25 acres we own, and the other is in conservation easements. And we also do educational programs, and and a big component of what we also do is our trails. We uh, manage a jointly with the Georges River Land Trust, a 25-mile hiking trail network. Great. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Um, tell us a little bit, if you can, about the origins in around 1990 of this particular land trust and what brought people together to protect, protect land in that particular area. Sure. Uh, this group got started, there was a uh, property around a marsh that um, someone bought, a uh, developer, and clear-cut the land around the marsh and then actually put a road through the middle of the marsh to get to the other side to mm -hmm. clear-cut over there, and he was going to sell lots and houses. And uh, neighbors got concerned about what was going on and, and thought perhaps that the road through the marsh was not legal and checked with the state, and, and it was not legal. And um, so the person was required to remove the road and remediate the damage, and then they decided to try to buy the property, which they eventually did. And that was a 47-acre uh, parcel that surrounds a beautiful little marsh in Montville. And uh, they bought it for about $47,000, and that was the first property they bought. And it, it's an interesting story of how it got started. There was a, uh, a family that lived right nearby, and their daughter was a student on the Audubon Expedition Institute, um, Shearston George, and she came home from her first semester on the road with the Audubon School doing environmental studies and saw this marsh being destroyed and implored her parents to do something and so they started talking to neighbors and they had a meeting and eventually they actually did do something. It's mm, a great story. Uh, tell us a little about the the geology and geography. Um, we don't think of necessarily the Sheepskit River starting um, fairly close to where we are sitting, um, but, but it does. That's right. Uh, I think often uh, people think of the Sheepskit River and they think down Wiscasset, Alna, along the coast down there, but the, the river comes all the way up to th these towns that I mentioned before, up in Freedom and Montville at the very top. Um, it's a very hilly area, um, and it's lots of little creeks and marshes and a pretty wild area, heavily forested, um, not many fields in the area, very small fields, I suppose, in the area that we protect, but mostly um, woods. And the upper sheepskit is particularly nice. Um, it, the forest along... a a stretch of that hasn't been cut in probably 50 or 60 years. And so you have very mature forest, beautiful woods, trails through there. Um, really, um, the biologist who did a conservation plan for the watershed and finished it last year said they 
upper section of the Sheepskit River there, the riparian area was essentially pristine, mm -hmm. so in very beautiful condition. Mm -hmm. And um, you've mentioned that um, in addition to um, buying land to set it aside, you've done a lot of trails work. What do you suppose was the origin of that? Is that just people want to get out and, and uh, see what they've protected? The origin of that um, s sort of happened organically. It was just neighbors about three or four of us in the neighborhood, each working on trails on our own land to go out and ski or walk a little bit in the woods. And then one day as we were talking, realized, oh, we should connect our trails. And then we did that. And then that was that at that level of uh, sophistication for a little while. And then other people kept saying, well, I know these trails are there, but we don't know how to use them. You guys are familiar with them. They're not marked. And so then we said, well, maybe we need to take it up another step, and that was when we started to mark the trails and blaze them. And then uh, we had a, a f kind of a funny experience with it all when we finally put up a trailhead sign one day about five years ago. And I remember putting the trailhead sign up and thinking, who's going to come? And, <laughs> and, and it, it was if you've seen the movie, uh, Kevin Costner's movie, The Field of Dreams, and he builds the baseball field in the cornfields of Iowa, and then magically the baseball players show up like within days, that is what happened with these trails. I mean, literally, I would drive past that trailhead in the next few days, and there were cars parked there. And I had no idea how people even knew that the place existed. Mm -hmm. So that notion of uh, build it and they will come, a little bit like uh, feeding birds, I suppose, too. It, it t takes a, a little while for the birds to understand that you might be uh, feeding them. And then they, they tell their neighbors, and, and all of a sudden you've got a flock of birds, a flock yeah. of hikers in, in your case. Exactly. So if, if we were to take one of those uh, trails uh, today, a, kind of a spring morning, take us along one of your favorite trails, and what would we be seeing? Um, I'll go around the Bogbrook Trail, which was the first one um, where we put up a trailhead and marked it. Um, it starts on the property the Land Trust first purchased and goes through a pretty new section of woods initially. Um, you can tell it's pretty young growth with a few older trees. And then you're up on the side of a ridge and you can look down over this marsh in places and the trail goes past a beautiful, huge glacial erratic, a monster stone. Um, and you continue, and then it gets to the top of the marsh and follows along a beautiful creek and a hemlock woods, and then you come out to another marsh up further. And then the trail also goes on private lands, and one of the areas that it goes through is a beautiful old hemlock forest um, with probably 100 or more trees that are two to 300 years old, and that's lovely. And then it, the trail continues on and circles the marsh um, and goes through a lot of different kinds of forest habitats, um, goes through some beautiful sections of pine woods on the opposite side, and eventually you have some choices about how you want to go back out to the road on different trails, but mm. a real variety of habitats. Mm -hmm. And if, if people are interested in, in hiking these trails, how would they, other than just discovering the trailhead, how would they know now um, uh, about these trails? Um, they could call the Land Trust and order a trails brochure. We also uh, have a website, uh, www.swallowmain, and you can download a map there or order a map. And we also keep maps out at different area businesses. There are some at the Belfast Dance Studio in Belfast, um, Half Moon Gardens Greenhouse in Thorndike, um, Liberty Graphics in Liberty, um, 
probably other places that I'm just Great. not thinking of right now. Great. Well, um, before we um, kind of um, talk about your relationship with George's River Land Trust and the trail system there, tell us a little bit about the current project that you're working on. Um, it seems like um, <clears throat> Land Trust started out um, in the 1970s protecting pretty places. Um, Maine Coast Heritage Trust is an example, looking at what you saw from a boat or um, from a trail, protecting those places. But I think um, things have changed. Tell us a little bit about what you've seen the evolution um, proceeding and how that fits with your particular project. Sure. I, I think that change comes across the whole spectrum of conservation. I mean, initially when they started protecting places in the United States, it, they talk about they use the term protecting rock and ice, that mm. initially they were protecting the high mountainous areas. And then over time, they realized that to keep the full range of species in and around these areas, they also needed to be protecting the habitat that was lower down, that included the streams and riparian areas and rivers and so forth. And I think that's true everywhere and uh, with land trust in Maine now too. Um, everybody's much more aware of the need to protect biodiversity, which is the full range or spectrum of species from little bitty microbes and lichens and mushrooms all the way up to the, to the big furry ones that, that we all like to see. Um, and we're fortunate to just be in a very rural area uh, out in the Montville, Liberty, Freedom, Palermo area. So there's, there's not as much development. It's not as dense and the land is cheaper. And it's really afforded us an opportunity to, to think about uh, protecting bigger pieces of land. And even some of the properties that we bought, um, sometimes when some of the coastal land trusts hear about the size of some of the properties, you know, they're envious. Sometimes they're doing projects that are 20 acres or 30 acres. And some of the properties that we protected, 205 acres, 225 acres, and the current project we're working on is a 414-acre parcel, which is one of the largest uh, unprotected parcels in the Sheepskate watershed uh, today. And um, the exciting piece about that is that it's abutted by properties that we already protect. So if we're successful in protecting this property, um, it will create immediately an 1,100-acre block of protected property. Um, and what we realized a few years ago, I think for a long time, we were just sort of focused just in the watershed. And then we realized that just outside of the watershed, about a mile from land that we protect, is Fry Mountain Wildlife Management Area, 5,200-acre protected area in the St. George watershed, or part, mostly in the St. George watershed. So we realized we should be thinking about connectivity to protect a larger block of land because of that um, blocks of that size because of their importance to protecting a fuller range of species and, and giving enough habitat for species like bobcat, moose, um, larger mammals that have bigger habitat needs. And if we want to keep them in the mid-coast area and, and uh, over the years. So, so that's the plan now is to try to create connectivity with this Fry Mountain game area and to eventually try to create an area of 10,000 acres or more that would be contiguous. And if we're successful with that, 10,000 acres would be the largest contiguous protected area in southern Maine. Mm. That's a great story, and, it, and I think it really illustrates the the progress or the, the evolution of the conservation movement uh, here in Maine and, and elsewhere. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns this morning. We're talking about conservation and public access. Here in the studio, we have Buck O'Haran, who is with the Sheepskit Wellspring Land Alliance. 
Um, and we also ha- have in, in studio uh, Sherry Domina. Sherry is with Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust. Um, Sherry, I know that in your recent campaign to purchase the, the wildlands, as you've called them, you used some of that same argument that you needed to protect larger um, uh, areas um, for habitat. That's correct. And, and we got... Uh, I think lucky with the wildlands. It's a 4,300 acre area in East Orland that was owned by one landowner. So we didn't have to piece it together over a number of years. Um, We purchased it from a single landowner and it was uh, about a two and a half year campaign to do that. And we finished that back in 2007. And uh, it's it's been very exciting. It's been quite a challenge. Um, But yes, one of the reasons we wanted to do it was that it did protect a, a big chunk of the area around Great Pond Mountain protected um, a large habitat for moose, black bears, bobcats, um, you know, just about every critter you're going to find in Maine, you're going to find right here off Route 1 in in Orland. And uh, so we felt that 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 was important, and it also protected um, the watershed of uh, Hot Hole Pond, which is a more or less pristine little pond that's uh, undeveloped here in Orland, um, and a three-acre system of um, trout uh, brooks that run into it. Mm. or excuse me, three miles of trout brooks that run into it. So it's about um, six tributaries and then Hot Hole Brook itself that mm-hmm. runs through the middle of this property. Mm. I can remember my uh, boss at the time, uh, Bob Benoise, who was with Maine Coast Heritage Trust, coming back from a visit to Hot Hole Pond and just, just being amazed. And this would have been 1974, 75. So people have recognized the significance, but it's taken 30 years to get that kind of protection that really will set it aside for, for uh, in perpetuity. Right, and this, this area is uh, kind of a well-kept secret. It's not something that's visible from a public road. It's a big valley, um, and it's essentially in between um, several different roads. You can't see it from anywhere unless you climb to the top of Great Pond Mountain, and then that's almost the entire view shed on the eastern side of the mountain. Mm. Um, so people go in there, and, and they're amazed. They look around and say, wow, I had no idea this was back here. I've mm. driven by here for years and years and years. Mm. Let's uh, bring another person into the conversation. We have Annette Nagel is uh, with the Georges River Land Trust. Welcome to Talk of the Towns, Annette. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be a part of this great conversation. Great. Tell us a little bit about Georges River Land Trust. Um, We think of that as uh, a kind of a coastal land trust, and yet it has its origins in very close to where um, the land Buck is talking about um, in in, um, kind of west, northwest of, of Belfast. Tell us a little bit about your, your land trust. Terrific. Thank you, Ron. It is um, more of a coastal land trust, certainly, but it does originate at Fry Mountain, where Buck was speaking earlier. And Fry Mountain, interestingly enough, is the headwaters to five different river systems, but the three primary ones are um, Kennebec, the Sheepscot, and, of course, the Georges River. So it starts um, up at that point in Sears Mountain, Montville area, and proceeds for 51 miles down and dumps in Muscungus Bay at Port Clyde, between Port Clyde and Cushing. And the Georges River Land Trust has been working in the watershed of the St. George River for the past 21 years. And it began actually by a group of residents at the lower end of the watershed in the more kind of developed region in the St. George area and felt back 21 years ago that some of the landscapes that they saw, while not vast compared to um, what Buck has been describing, were certainly close to their hearts and places that they did not want to see um, developed. And so they began the Georgia River Land Trust with the help of Maine Coast Heritage Trust and had the vision, 
I believe, at that point, to see that what happened down there at the tidal end of the river was, of course, influenced by what happened at the headwaters. So that's why back in 87, the vision of those early um, people who started the organization thought to include the entire watershed boundary. So it's a 225-square-mile region, and as I said, the river meanders through 14 different towns and has seven or eight different large bodies of um, water ponds that actually go through the center of it as well as feed into it. So it's a vast system, but its characteristics are a bit different than what you've been hearing from um, both Buck and Sherry because it is more in the developed part of um, our coastal zone, and yet the river itself is one of these little magic places where there isn't a lot of development along its margins, and that has been the heart of where George's River Land Trust has been spending its conservation effort to, to focus on conservation along the river corridor itself. So again, you've taken the cue from the natural system, this case being the river and the, the watershed of that river, things draining into that river, and you've said, um, let's see what we can do to uh, protect that whole, whole system. Yes, exactly. And the, the river, interestingly, has um, an extremely rich history. It's one that has um, had industrial use for over 150 years. It had mill sites all along its edges. It is the site today of Robbins Lumber, which has been sustainably managing woodlands along the edge of the river and throughout the watershed for the last 100-plus um, years. And it even has history going back 9,000 years. It's some one of the few places in Maine where there are archaeological remains dating back 9,000 years. And in spite of all of that, it's a, an amazingly pristine river system that you can travel along and see very little development and almost always encounter eagles and ospreys and herons and um, a host of wildlife that make people feel that even though they've traveled, you know, five minutes from downtown Rockland or um, Camden or Belfast area, that they they come to a place that reminds them of somewhere else much more remote. So um, one way to travel is is by canoe, I suppose. Um, and I know that that's one of the ways that you raise awareness and raise friends for um, the Georges River Land Trust. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, as you know, the first um, whitewater race, actually not sponsored by Georges River Land Trust, but we partner in it with the Belfast um, YMCA, is the whitewater race. And the first one of the season um, starts on the St. George River the last weekend in March. And there's Class Three waters on some sections of the river, and so it's a great place to paddle in the early spring if you're adventurous, but even as the um, season moves through to the summer when some of the upper part of the river is less accessible, the tidal portion is always accessible, and the Land Trust does host some canoe um, rides on sections of the river that you can get to that are <coughs> more quiet waters in the summertime, and it is a great place to explore, so I encourage people who have boats to get on the river and experience its solitude and wildlife beauty. You've um, um, had a, a long-standing relationship with uh, folks at the Sheepscot Wellspring Land Alliance. Why don't you start the story, and then we'll uh, get Buck to pick up on that. <laughs> well, it, it, again, because we share this um, headwaters, it's a magnificent thing to think of one mountain range that luckily has been protected, as Buck said, as a fi over 5,000-acre state-owned um, wildlife management area, 
that it's shared by three different river systems. And so it's a great, I believe, not only spectacular place for people to visit, but educational opportunity for people to see how one mountain can um, provide the impetus for three different robust and di diverse systems to travel through. So we um, worked in partnership with the state to develop a portion of our Georges Highland Path, which has been a, a trail system we've put in place that began in the um, early 90s. And it travels through different sections of the watershed. It's now 40 miles long. And the section in the upper watersheds, it seemed a likely partnership to work with the state and cooperate with them to develop a system of walking trails that complemented their wildlife management work. And they were completely cooperative of uh, having that system set up. And of course, we found immediately to our west was this great land trust swallow working on their own set of trails um, through their portion of the watershed and thought, wouldn't it be great to connect them to allow people to have um, a larger vision of that system, not only from its landscape perspective, but how these two watersheds connect. Buck, how would you um, talk about your, your connections there? Um, we were, it was a surprise to us. Uh, Dave Getchell called us up one day and said they were working on their Fry Mountain Trail um, and coming over to Hogback Mountain and doing a, creating a loop up there and said, you know, it makes sense to us to try to connect trails. And we said, that sounds good to us. So we did connect, and that network out there right now on Fry and Hogback and down in the Sheepskit Watershed and now heading north is currently 25 miles in length. Um, it goes from Fry Mountain to the edge of Freedom Village, and um, it's, it's a wonderful resource. If somebody hasn't been on it, there are some lovely trails and uh, beautiful areas. The, the trail, one of the things that we learned from Dave Getchell, who is one of the creators of the Highland Path that uh, George's River has done in their watershed, him and Brendan Curran, uh, his right-hand man, when they would go out and look where to locate a trail, besides making sure that they put it into ecologically appropriate places so it's not damaging the ecology, they'll also spend all day out in an area with their topo map, but, but going back and forth, almost like doing grid lines across the landscape to try to find some of the interesting features and prettiest areas to route a trail through. And then they also make sure that they cut as few trees as possible so that it really stays a footpath so that it can't easily be co-opted by ATVs or something like that or it would be discouraging to somebody who tried to take their ATV down it. So, so we pretty much followed that same model and really worked hard to divine these trails out through beautiful sections of the woods. So most of them, there are places where they follow woods roads, but I would say the vast majority don't follow a woods road. And, and that helps to keep them in, you know, lovely shape, too. So that's a, a, a nice part. But the down, you know, in front of you on the ground is, is usually in great shape as well as the view as you're walking along. Um, we've also now been in conversation with um, a trails group over in Unity and with uh, the Belfast Bay Watershed Coalition in Belfast. And the long-term plan at this point is to try to connect with both of those groups as well and connect trails so that eventually this network would stretch over to the town of Unity and the campus of Unity College and Mofka Fairgrounds and, and possibly even Mount View High School. It may be multi-use 
trail over in closer to Unity, um, where it connects with Mafka and, and perhaps with the high school. And then we would also like to have the trail, and and we've begun to look at routes to do this, go into Belfast um, from Fry Mountain as well. And the, the edge of the trail on Fry Mountain um, right now is about eight miles as the crow flies from Belfast. So you're not really talking about that great of a distance. Um, and it just seems like it would be a wonderful thing to be able to hike from Belfast to Fry Mountain or all the way out to the Common Ground Fair for somebody who felt really ambitious. Right, right. So this is all in our backyard. This is great. Uh, Sherry, how would you um, kind of talk about some of the, the uh, use of, of trails and roads in the, in the Great Pound Mountain um, Conservation Area? Well, we've been both both blessed and cursed by having this 15-mile uh, network of logging roads that was in the wildlands property when we purchased it. And um, so it is a tremendous resource um, for recreation. And um, we open it up to bicycling, horseback riding, snowmobiling um, on parts of the trails, uh, obviously hiking, cross-country skiing. We actually had a, a volunteer this winter start grooming the trails for cross-country skiing, and it was just fabulous. Um, for those who discovered it, it was mm -hmm. a little bit late in the winter, and we, we, we were actually hoping for more snow in March <laughs> because of it. Uh, it was really great. But um, So there's all kinds of activities that take place in, in the wildlands, and um, we try to um, you know, make sure that we keep conflicts down and we keep people educated. We do allow dogs, for instance, but on the leash. Um, uh, but it, the road system is also a, a little bit of a curse in that it, it takes a lot to maintain it. And um, we actually have gotten some grant money this year to do some stabilization, um, for instance, a recreational trails grant um, from the state. And that'll be helping um, to keep some of these roads from eroding. Some of them go up some areas that are rather steep. So some of these roads we are going to retire eventually, um, and some we're going to maintain. We do allow vehicle traffic on um, about five miles or about four miles, actually, of the roads. Um, in the summer and fall on the weekend, you can drive in. Uh, since it's such a big area, um, uh, it's about five miles from the north to the south gate. So we let people drive halfway in. We have an interior parking lot, and people can um, take their hikes from there. Uh, Flag Hill is a wonderful hike. Um, you can get to within a, a mile of the summit and hike from there uh, in the summer and fall. Mm. So it, it strikes me as, as um, while <coughs> the, the conservation movement started out to protect land, what all of you are talking about is providing um, public use of these lands um, for public enjoyment, um, which is a, a different kind of uh, perspective than I think a lot of Maine people might have of, of the land trust movement. Buck, do you, is that what you see as well? Um, I think so. Um, it's, it varies a little bit from group to group. And, and the bottom line, I think, for any of the groups, though, is that they want to protect the land right. and, and protecting the land and protecting the ecology and biodiversity is actually critical to everyone's survival, including humans. So that's, that's the most important piece. But I really see the trails as a way to raise awareness about conservation. And I think when people get out and see what it is you're trying to protect, they can get more enthusiastic about it. They can get on board, and um, it just and and I think in the long run we have to care about the places we live, mm. and and the more we care, the more we'll work to protect them. Mm. You're tuned to Talk of the Towns. We're having a great conversation about conservation and public access. 
with our guests in the studio, Buck O'Heron of the Sheepscut Wellspring Land Alliance and Sherry Domina of the Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust. We're joined by phone at this point uh, by Annette Nagel of the Georges River Land Trust. You can participate as well if you'd like to give us a call and share your perspectives, your um, information, your questions. Uh, give us a call toll-free 1-866-625-9378. And if the line is busy, just uh, be patient and call back. We've got uh, one line open, 1-866-625-9378. If you'd like to participate in this conversation about conservation and public access. Um, providing this kind of public benefit, um, are you able to use that um, when you're, you're working with municipal officials, um, with donors? What, what is the appeal that you are, are gaining by providing this kind of public access? Um, Sherry, talk a little bit about your campaign um, was a very public campaign to, to raise the money to purchase um, your, your wildlands, and it was really grassroots public support that, that brought that uh, to a successful conclusion. That's true, and as I mentioned, a lot of people didn't know where we were talking about at first, and we had to kind of take them there and say, look at this. Did you know this was here? And they were blown away that, that, that they had missed that their whole lives. So having public access to it is really critical. Um, and, and sure, it helps us to uh, get grants and to get support from the community. Um, but I think it was always part of our reason for buying the property. We, we do manage it first and foremost for wildlife habitat. That's our number one goal. But recreation is a close second because we really feel that, you know, if people can't get out there and, and, and learn to love it and appreciate it, then they, they won't really want to protect it. They won't care enough about it. Um, so we think that that's, that's critical to our mission is providing those places for people to really get out there and connect with nature. And, and you had to decide about hunting. How did you make that choice? Well, the state helped us along because we did get an LMF grant, um, and that requires that we open it to hunting, fishing, and trapping. However, um, I think... L LMF just... Land, land for Maine's future. Thank you, Thank you Ron. Yep. <laughs> um, so that was state funding to help purchase this property. But I, I think regardless of that, we would have opened it anyway because um, really it's it's a large area it has a long tradition of hunting it, it is a traditional use of the land there and we've gotten fantastic support from the hunting community um, they're extremely cooperative um, and they're the people that are out there getting to know the place like the back of their hand and they're going to tell you what's going on out there and, and they're going to be some of your best friends and we really have learned that great we do have a phone call let's take that phone call and see what the question or comment might be go ahead please Hello, yes, this is uh, Yo in Tremont. My question is, um, in conserving wild lands and public access, is there any alternative to purchasing and ownership? That's a great question. Thank let's, you. Let's see if we, um, you'll, you'll take that off, offline. Um, let's see um, what the alternatives might be in terms of, of uh, protecting land without necessarily having to, to buy it. And that relates to so many of the private landowners, I think, um, who, who have those values, um, who would like to see public use, but they don't want to see their properties damaged. They're worried about liability. There's lots of questions here. What, what are the alternatives to actually purchasing land? Buck, have you got any thoughts about that? Um, I'll, I'll start on this one, but I think both Annette and Sherry have a lot more experience with, uh, with conservation easements. Okay. Conservation easements are one of the main tools that land trusts and landowners have available to them to protect a property. And the way that works is the 
property, you create a legal agreement between the landowner and the entity that's going to hold the easement, the land trust in this case, and decide, you know, the different parameters of how you want to take care of that land. And, um, and that way, um, a landowner, they can either donate that conservation easement, so the cost is really minimal to the land trust um, to try to protect it, and they're going to be the entity that's going to ensure that the agreements of how it is to be protected will be honored over time. Um, so that, and that's a big responsibility, and there are costs associated with that, but at least they don't have to purchase the land outright initially. Um, conservation easements usually or primarily try to limit development um, and development that's going to hurt the conservation values of a property. Um, let's see, oftentimes, too, forestry may still be allowed on the land. Um, it just depends on what agreements get worked out with that landowner. Um, sometimes landowners will sell conservation easements to groups also, so that's a way to also make that happen. Annette, how about you? What's your experience with conservation easements or other tools that landowners might, might use? Well, one of the things I was going to highlight um, specific to the question about providing public access without acquisition, and it's not so much tied specifically to the wildlands protection, but the program, one of the programs of Georgia's River Land Trust is our conservation trails, which is not specifically tied to lands that we own. And that's how we've developed this Georgia's Highland Path. Um, it's a, a system of trails where landowners have made handshake agreements with the land trust to allow access across their properties on much of their back lands that they don't use or generally have access to. And that is an option that doesn't require purchase of title, and it provides the opportunity for people to have access across landscapes that they otherwise would not have access to. The experience of protecting um, habitats with landowners that's not through fee purchase, as Buck has described, is the conservation easement. And I like to think of that often as a three-legged stool, because the decisions of how that easement is crafted is based on the landowner's own objectives for the future of that property, the natural resource values of the property that are important to protect, and the, thirdly, the mission of the local land trust that's working to protect that resource. And they really run the spectrum from being forever wild easements, whereby the land is really protected mostly for its wildland values and does not really involve any kind of public use or resource management use, to properties that are protected that involve um, very active resource management. Some of our, uh, in fact, a lot of our conservation easements are about protecting working landscapes, um, properties that are working farms, working forests, even working waterfronts, so that landowners can continue to manage those landscapes, but they are um, protected for those conservation values and would not otherwise be turned over to the marketplace for some future use determined by, um, you know, local zoning or opportunities for development. Great. I know that um, um, Sherry may have a comment as well, but we could also mention the, um, the Department of Conservation has an active program to help relationships between um, users of private land and those landowners. And I know that um, there's a great website on, on the state website that talks about landowner relations. So if individual landowners 
are willing to have their land used and, and not post it um, against use, um, there are a whole variety of ways to, to help make, make sure those relationships um, are good ones. The uh, pamphlet that I'm looking for says, access to private land is a privilege, not a right. And I think that's um, the, the attitude that, that uh, the state is trying to foster to uh, help make sure that um, more private land isn't just posted and, and people um, eliminated from, from that land, but to, to get um, a kind of respectable, r respectful use of that land. Sherry, what would you add to the question of, of uh, how land might be made available other than um, purchasing itself? I think there's a lot of potential um, for education, and, and I think land trusts could do a little bit better job at educating people as to what's important in their community. Uh, a lot of people obviously know what's important in their community to them, but maybe they don't know you know, what's out there so much in terms of biodiversity and, and um, if you just uh, tell people, for instance, that, you know, the bobolinks uh, are nesting and if you wait to cut that hay a couple more weeks, they'll be able to fledge their nestlings. Well, you know, I mean, those people love bobolinks and they've been watching them, but they just don't know when they fledge their young. So I think there's a lot of people who have great intentions and, and would, um, with a little more education, be able to to do a lot of protection on their own property. A lot of people are great stewards of their land. Um, we are trying to do some more um, forestry education in the wildlands, and um, we would really like to do more in the future um, about sustainable forestry and, and getting people to, to think more about um, the long-term use of the forest and um, sustainable harvesting, for instance. Um, farming is another one. There's a, there's a lot of farms still in the area, and... Um, but a lot of people don't know where they are, don't know that they can go to these places and, and buy, you know, locally grown vegetables or beef or chicken or pork. And so helping these farmers to spread the word, I, I think, uh, about local farms is another way that you could protect open space in the community. So this notion that both uh, you and Annette have mentioned, um, this notion of a working landscape, um, a working landscape that allows people to use it, but also respects those individual um, uh, forests or farms or fields, <coughs> excuse me, or or uh, um, coastal areas that have a um, an economic purpose. Buck, how do you see um, some of the, the the working landscape in your connections? Um, we, our area, it's mostly um, working forest, a lot of working forest, and, and we, although we're starting to see more small farms spring up in our area too, I think in response to people wanting healthier food and more control over how it's grown, um, and that's a very exciting piece. Um, land that w we're looking at or that we currently protect doesn't have any um, working farm land at all. Um, one of the things I wanted to add on to uh, go back to just briefly about um, access, you know, um, Annette mentioned before about the, the trails and public access to lands being done with a handshake. And one of the things we're fortunate to have in Maine is a law that protects landowners from liability if someone gets hurt on their property. We have some of the strictest landowner liability laws in the country, and in fact, um, there's never been a landowner who was successfully sued in the state of Maine by someone being hurt on their property unless they had something out there on their land that was, you know, intentionally left and with the intent to hurt somebody. So, for example, if somebody is just out on your property and they <coughs> trip and break their leg, um, y you cannot be sued. And so that's why landowners can feel comfortable 
you know, agreeing to have trails cross their property or just to allow hunters to be on their property as well. And that same Department of Conservation website that talks about landowner relations has a great brochure about um, Maine's liability law. We do have another call. I'll list our phone numbers one more time. It's uh, uh, toll-free one. Uh, 866-625-9378 if you'd like to comment on our topic this morning which is conservation and public access go ahead with your question or comment please hi um i'm calling to say that i think it's wonderful that um there are people protecting the land the way that uh, you folks are are looking to do and especially in the light of the development practices today but um i do have a concern and and my concern is allowing across the board hunting and trapping. Um, I I especially myself have had a tract of land out out of the way and on a dirt road off a road, and it is um, just terribly busy with coyote hunters all year round. They're they're relentless. Um, they they hunt with hound dogs. And even at night, at certain times of the year, they're allowed to um, hunt them, just chase them for as long as they they want to. Um, in the winter, uh, in, in right now, uh, even as they're trying to raise their pups, um, they can set hounds on them. Um, and I just think it's terribly cruel and unnecessary. And I and I also feel the same way about trapping. I. I mean, in some instances, probably necessary, but basically not. And I'm very, very saddened to hear that um, you've you've given given in uh, wholeheartedly to the that particular thing. Well, thank I you. Guess Go ahead. That's all I have to say. I well, guess. good. Thank you. And and you, it sounds like your experience with your own land um, uh, gives you kind of first-hand experience as to what's what's happening on the landscape. It is. I'll tell you, the coyote hunters, um, not good. I have not had a good experience with them at all. And the, the dogs have run onto my land and have been baying. Um, and, and after coyotes uh, waking me up in the you know early, early morning hours, and I've gone out and, and said, please, please don't set your dogs loose out where there are houses. And, and they say, well... Uh, on and the, the land has been posted, and they'll say, "Well, the dogs can't read signs." Um, so, um, deer hunting—I I think that is necessary. Lyme disease and the deer—deer are healthy when the deer are healthy, of course. But uh, the bobcat, the coyotes—I think they're getting a hard rap. So, <laughs> I guess that's just all I had to say. Oh, and in the fall, when when we all love to be out in the woods and and enjoying during that time of season, of course, it's, there's a lot of guns going off out there. And I, I just think it would be nice to have some big tracts of land completely free of this. Um, and that's all. Great. Thank you so much for your call and your comments this morning. You're very welcome. Bye-bye now. one 625 as we talk about conservation and public access. Our guests in the studio are Sherry Domina of Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust and Buck O'Heron. The Sheepskit Wellspring Land Alliance. On the phone with us, we have Annette Nagel of the Georges River Land Trust. So, Sherry, I know you you had to face into those kinds of questions that this caller raises. 
We did. There was quite a bit of controversy um, on our board and amongst our members when we decided to, um, to allow the hunting and, and the trapping on the property. Um, as I mentioned, we didn't really have a choice if we were going to take the Land for Maine's future funds. Um, but we've found that actually um, it, it hasn't been an issue for us. I don't actually think we've had any trappers that have operated on the property yet. Um, because the land is gated um, through the fall and winter, um, folks who hunt in there um, tend to be the hiking hunters who are willing to go for a long walk and just enjoy their day out. And um, they, they can't drive in with bait or with dogs or anything like that. So um, it's a pretty quiet hunting experience in the wildlands. Um, I would say as far as the, the coyote hunting, that's something that, that really needs to be addressed maybe on the state level. That's where they make those decisions about how and when and where you can hunt coyotes. And, and there are people that that are upset about the way that works right now. Mm -hmm. So the, you're, you're saying that this is a public policy issue as well as it, it might be an individual landowner or a land trust issue, um, but the, 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 the methods of hunting are a state public policy issue. Yes, that's right, true. Right. We do have another call. Let's take that call and uh, ask for your question or comment, please. Hi, um, my name is Brian Alexander, and I live in Rome, and I just want to um, commend your guests on their efforts, um, and I guess I'm most familiar with the with the George's Highland, and I I use that year round. As a matter of fact, I had two or three terrific snowshoe hikes down there this winter, um, and I'm also involved in a land trust project. I've been involved in that for around ten years. Um, it's called the Kennebec Highlands, the Rome Belgrade Lakes area, and we've conserved um, around six thousand acres with another thousand acres pending. So. Yeah, I just wanted to say good job, and, you know, it's definitely needed. And I wish we all had a lot more money to spend on projects. Mm. Well, how did your project um, in the Rome area get started? Do you remember um, how that um, came to be? Well, actually, it was, um, I think it was like in 1988, um, and there was just this group of like three people, and there was a piece of property that came up for sale on uh, Watson Pond, I think it was 40 acres. And they said, well, let's buy it. <laughs> Um, and then, so it's just, uh, you know, it's blossomed from there. And, uh, um, once the Kennebec Collins project came around, I mean, that was like three or four years in the making, um, a start and a fail and then a restart. And, then, um, then we've got the LF money and things like that. And so things are just rolling along quite well now. Great. Well, thanks so much for your call this morning. Okay, thank you. 1-866-625-9378 as we begin to round out the hour as we talk about conservation and public access. That's been one of the great traditions in Maine, especially different states have different used different approaches. But when two or three people get together and say, I want to protect that land, a land trust or some, something springs up. And it's a great tradition in Maine. Buck, you've probably seen that. Um, what would you say? Is that, is that still still part of what's going on, or is there some other trend that's going on as well? Um, I, I think it's changing or going to change. Um, it, it's, um, in the last few years, it's, um, land trusts have, there's been some questions and some issues that have gotten attention on the federal level, and, and they've started to look harder at how land trusts operate and really wanting the process to be um, more standardized and and completely transparent. I think it has been pretty transparent, and 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 honestly, I think most land trusts are probably 
um, very scrupulous about what they do, but there have been abuses by individuals. And so it's getting harder. There's more hoops and red tape to do as a land trust. And I think what we're going to see actually is the number of land trusts in Maine probably decrease over time as we see more mergers. And mm-hmm. we're already seeing more mergers. Um, it's There's just too many... Um, Small things to do right, right. Um, to cross all your T's and dot your I's that land trusts are required to do now. And without having enough staff and uh, enough money to do that, um, to be able to be certified, you now have to eventually, I think you're going to have to be certified as a land trust. Um, right now, they're encouraging land trusts to do this. And a few in Maine have gone through this process, which is very lengthy and uh, time consuming and have done that, and, and others are eventually going to have to do the same thing. We have another call, but I'll just ask for a brief comment from Annette Nagel. Um, how do you see this kind of trend? You've been in the in the work of land conservation for a long time. Um, people are still interested in protecting uh, little pieces in their backyard, but they're being tied to larger efforts like the Georgia's River Land Trust. I, I do think that the trend will continue toward land conservation. I, I think, you know, if you look back um, at Maine compared to take the big view of Maine compared to other you know, places in the country, most of our land is private. And so we've been blessed with the tradition of public access, um, given that's part of our topic today, traditionally across a private landscape, which is rather unusual when you look across the countryside, where a lot of land where people traditionally have access is on public land. So conservation, I think, over time has managed to blend itself very nicely with that tradition of public access, um, Mm. where we have been able to introduce the idea of permanent conservation that can be compatible with the the traditional uses that people have expected across private property. But conservation has added, I think, something more to that, which has allowed people to connect beyond just the, um, the, the kind of the obvious benefit of getting onto landscapes and have grown more appreciative of these larger habitats that, you know, Buck is working so hard on to create these vast, large landscapes of um, uninterrupted habitat for wildlife benefits. So I think the trend in in Maine is going to continue towards um, conservation, and we have an ethic that goes well and goes a long way towards um, allowing that kind of thing to happen. Well, thanks. We have uh, one uh, phone call. Um, Go ahead with your question or comment, please. Hello, uh, my name's Pat. I live in Rockland. Uh, I am a pro-Georges River Land Trust person. I use the trails. I love to paddle the, um, the river. But I have a concern. By preserving so much land in this area and taking it out of, uh, you know, out of public, uh, where people can't own it, does that drive up the cost of other land in the area and and making it more inaccessible. Thank you. That's a great question. Um, I think um, every um, um, action has a reaction, and certainly when there's limited pieces of land, um, it is going to change the, the values. But it probably relates to the, the geographic area and the economy of a local area rather than as a whole state. Buck, you're saying that, that land is relatively available in, in the upper reaches of, of uh, your area. 
Um, I, I think it is going to de depend on the larger economy and the local situation, like you said, Ron. Um, you know, there are, there are other benefits that you have to consider, too, that conserved land does, which I think sometimes people forget. You know, you protect, well, farmland is obvious. That's important because it provides food. But forest land protected, even if it's protected as forever wild, it's providing, you know, what they call ecosystem services. You know, it filters water, it stores water, it uh, cleans our air, creates oxygen, um, and, and then again it preserves the whole, helps to preserve the spectrum of species. And, you know, we're playing this giant game uh, across the planet right now of removing species from the fabric of um, this global ecosystem, and nobody knows what the long-term effect of that is going to be. And it's not good in, in all likelihood. Mm. Um, and we know that from when we already diminish or remove a species entirely from a particular ecosystem, there are problems. Annette, any response there? Yes, I would say, too, as well, I think um, the comment <clears throat> was well taken, and it's something that I know our land trust and probably all the others take to heart when we look at where we do conservation work so that there is that balance and as well to try and help um, people see the view that a conservation organization usually takes which is the long view and in the short run yes you may see a diminishment of property taxes specifically if land comes off the tax roll but there have been numerous studies that talk about the long-term impact which is very different because the costs get balanced where by conservation lands generally don't demand the same degree of services as um, developed lands that would require infrastructure, road maintenance, um, fire protection, school services, um, septic systems. There's a whole host of infrastructure costs that often go along with with developed landscapes. So it's it's the longer view that the conservation community is tied to that is providing some of the ecosystem services that Buck just mentioned and is creating um, a balance on our landscape that you know goes along with the necessary services of development that is provided so it is something that we address we take when we go to communities we talk to them very specifically and directly about um, the fiscal impacts of conservation and how it can work in their community over the long term to give them the benefits that um, they all appreciate and and do have um, a long-term ecological cost to them. Thanks. Um, Annette, why don't you um, list your contact information for folks oh, interested certainly. in the Georgia's River Land Trust? All right. Well, um, as the last caller just mentioned, we are also in Rockland. We're right on North Main Street. So we welcome anyone to come in our doors. We're in the same building as the Free Press, a wonderful local paper here, free paper in Rockland. Our phone number is area code 207, of course, 594-5166. And our website is www.grlt.org. And I'll ask our guests here in the studio as well, um, uh, Sherry, um, for more information about Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust. We have a website. It's uh, www.greatpondtrust.org. And our phone number is 469-7190. Great. And uh, Buck O'Haren from uh, Sheepskit Wellspring Land Alliance. Sure. Our website is www swlamain.org and our phone number is 589-3230.
rate, well, this hour has gone too fast. And, and, and I, Buck, you have a, a, a book there. I'm sure you would have read from that book if we had time. We've come to that time when I want to remind you that this program was produced with support from Cooperative Extension and the Hancock County Extension Association. With offices in each county, Cooperative Extension is the major educational outreach program of the University of Maine. Our radio collaboration with WERU began in 1990 and continues with your support. Join us from 10 to 11 on the second and fourth Friday mornings of each month for Talk of the Towns. Our theme music is a medley from Coronach on a Balmain House Highland music recording. Thanks again to our guests here in the studio, Buck O'Heron from Sheepscut Wellspring Land Alliance. Sherry Domina with Great Pond Mountain Conservation Trust, and Annette Nagel joined us by phone from George's River Land Trust. Thanks to you who listened and called in. Thanks to our underwriters. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program, and stay tuned for On the Wing. This is Ron Beard, your host for Talk of the Towns, wishing you a good morning. Support for Renewable Radio comes from Intertech.